Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today on Something You Should Know, is it a moot point or a mute point? Espresso or expresso? Etc. or etc. We'll look at some commonly misused words and phrases. Then, how risky are you? And how does your age affect how much risk you'll take? There is something about having your peers around you in the teenage years which really downplays risk. You're much more interested in impressing your friends and trying these things than you are in thinking about the outcome. Also, the most common reasons cars break down. And they're all preventable reasons. And too many of us are just too nice. And that needs to change. And that involves saying, hey, you know what? Other people and their needs and their desires matter, but so do mine. And I think the habitual nice person devalues their own needs, dismisses their own wants, and is very self-sacrificing. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, well, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. You know, something podcasting has, as an industry, has done pretty well is is figured out how to count how many people are listening. But one thing podcasting, which is a relatively new medium, one thing podcasting as an industry doesn't do all that well is figure out who is listening. It's all kind of vague and their estimates and we go by anecdotal evidence from emails, that kind of thing. But that's a long way of saying that, that it's always good to hear from you, a listener, because it gives us a little more piece of the puzzle as to who listens. So you're always welcome to contact me. 
I read all the emails. I reply to all the emails that need a reply or ask for a reply. And my email address is mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. First up today, words and phrases that get warped and misused over time. The problem is that a lot of those words and phrases become commonplace, but they're still warped and misused and consequently incorrect. Here are some commonly misused words and phrases that you want to make sure you're not using. A mute point. The correct phrase is a moot point. Mute means silent. A moot point is something that is subject to debate or a matter of no importance. Expresso. Strong coffee in a tiny cup has no X in it, either in writing or pronunciation. It is espresso, not expresso. Jive with the facts. This phrase is used to say that something isn't correct as, hey, that doesn't jive with the facts. But jive is defined as a colorful form of speaking, or as referring to a certain kind of jazz or swing music. The correct phrase is jibe, b, with a b, jibe with the facts. Jibe means to agree, etc. Pronounce etc. exactly how it is spelled. The first syllable is et, not ek. Overuse of the word literally. A lot of people throw this word around as an embellishment to intensify whatever they're trying to say. But literally means actually, or in a strict sense. So you can't say, my head literally exploded, (laughs) because if it did, your head would have exploded. 80s. When people write the abbreviation for a decade, like 80s or 70s or 90s, they typically write 80 apostrophe S. But the correct way is to write it apostrophe 80S. The apostrophe goes in front to replace the 19 of 1980. There's no apostrophe between the 0 and the S because there's no reason to put an apostrophe there. And that is something you should know. One of the fascinating things that really defines who we are and where we go is our ability and willingness to take risks. I think about it. If you never take risks, you never get anywhere. Taking risks is how we move forward in life, literally and figuratively. But, but taking risks can also be, well, risky. Risky in the bad sense of the term, that you're being too risky. Because taking a risk implies you could fail, and if you're too risky, you could fail a lot, and, well, that's not good. So let's dive a little deeper into the topic of risk with somebody who has really studied it. Kate Sukel is a journalist and author of the book The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Hi, Kate. Welcome. So what's your interest in this subject of risk-taking? I mean, you write about a lot of things as a journalist, and you have another book about love and sex. So why risk-taking? My parents had always talked about me and said that I was a risk-taker, And I kind of approached 40 and it stopped. So I was kind of curious about that. If risk-taking is supposedly this innate quality, where had it gone? Um, At the same time, you know, my son was getting older and I was watching him explore the world. And I was also sort of curious, you know, how he was set up. How much of risk is biological? How much of it is the environment? And can you learn to be a good risk-taker? 
Well, what's interesting to me about risk is it's one of those words that that it kind of depends on how you say it as to whether it's a good or bad thing. You know, it's it's too risky or, wow, he's so successful because he's a risk taker. And it's the same it's the same word, but but it can go either way. And there's no in-betweens, right? It's either risk is the thing is going to kill you and bankrupt you, uh, maybe in the reverse order. It's going to ruin your life, uh, or it's the thing that's going to make your, you great. It's the thing that's going to make all of your dreams come true. Um, and we don't really talk about the middle. It's either all injury, disease, and death, or, you know, all success, wealth, and happiness. And how did we get there? Why, why these two sides that are so, so far apart? And of course, what scientists are learning is risk-taking really is something in the middle. Uh, when we're talking about risk, as simple as it sounds, it really is making a decision of which you're uncertain of the outcome. And so it can be something as little as whether or not you should have that third cup of coffee in the morning, knowing it might give you the jitters later, or whether it is about, you know, investing all of your savings into a new startup or moving cross-country for a new job. We talk about risk mostly about these big things. And the irony is we don't see all those little decisions, all those little risks that went into, um, you know, those, those outcomes that we usually end up talking about. Yeah, nobody ever says, you know, he's so successful because he's a really mediocre risk taker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, you know, there's a judgment value in there, right? So it's this idea that that you have to gamble. And I, I think that's the other thing when we talk about language. You know, some people, when they talk about risk, they're talking about, you know, gambling. They're talking about impulsive behavior. They're talking about... Um, you know, things that, that often do lead to negative outcomes. But really, you know, that smart risk-taking, that calculated risk-taking, he's maybe not a mediocre risk-taker, but he's done his homework. He's, you know, done enough to know the knowns and, you know, make a good calculation on some of the unknowns. And he's learned enough from his mistakes so that he can go forward and, and succeed. And I think that that's really important. And there may be a fair amount of, you know, mediocrity in some of those decisions that got him there. I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, that when you hit 40, it disappeared. Where'd it go? Good question. You know, I'd spent all this time in my 20s and 30s traveling all over the place, literally swimming with sharks, rock climbing. I mean, I, I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And then I sort of hit my 40s and found myself, you know, not unless there was an SVU uh, Law and Order Marathon on, I wasn't doing much of anything at all. And I, I really wondered about that switch. And, of course, there is a lot of science that talks about now, as we get older, it kind of gets harder to put yourself out there. There's good reason for that. Um, certainly risk-taking as a behavior is something that is linked to uh, mate-seeking. It's something that's linked to success and choice. By the time we get to our 40s and 50s, um, you know, we gain enough experience. Uh, you know, the old joke is you're old enough to know better. Well, you get to the point where you're old enough where it's not that you know better or not. You just know too much, and it kind of can make you stand still. So a lot of the research really looks at as we get older, for because we've gained all this great experience, we know about all the potential bad outcomes. And a lot of times that can make us really risk averse. And it's too bad because in the process, we can miss out on some great opportunities. I would think too, though, that if you are a risk taker and have been most of your life and been successful and the risks have turned out, that, that 
it wouldn't go away, that it would, it's worked for you up till now. Why not keep going? You'd think so. And that would be a really great experiment to do. And yet there is something about getting older where all of a sudden you're like, you, you get more protective of what you have. It's interesting in talking to some old rock climbers. These were all very, very good rock climbers who, uh, you know, were very skilled, very practiced. Even they sort of got more risk averse. They sort of, as they were assessing situations, tended to rate them as more dangerous or more likely to result in a fall than, than younger rock climbers were. So even though they had the skills to do it, even though they had the know-how, all that experience that their brain had taken in over time was telling them, okay, here's the 1,600 ways this could go wrong. And I think at a certain point when your brain starts going down that path, um, you know, it's almost a sense of anxiety. There has to be a really good reason to start that climb. And the reverse is true. I mean, at least starting in the teenage years, you look at teenage behavior, often called risky teenage behavior. Teenagers seem very willing to take risks and to the point of being foolish about it. Well, there's a biological imperative there. I mean, one, the brain, if we distill down what the brain does into a simplest form, it's a prediction machine. It is there to try to figure out what the world is going to throw at you next. In order to be a good prediction machine, it has to gain lots and lots of experience. So teenagers, they're going through this last leg of brain development. They're, you know, cementing these really important connections that are going to help them be successful adults. And that means they kind of have to get out there and get into the thick of it so they do know what the consequences are. I think often it's not so much that teens, you know, think that they're invincible, it's that they really have no idea what the outcomes might be. Um, they don't have enough experience. And it's not enough to say, oh, you know, this could hurt you or this could ruin you or what have you. They have to really sort of experience a little bit of that for themselves to understand what the stakes are. Yeah, but there are plenty of things that kids do, and they f- know full well if if you go 100 miles an hour in a drag race, there's a good chance you'll wind up crashing your car and be dead. And if you do drugs, I mean, they've been... But there's, there's a difference between intellectually knowing and having experienced some of that stuff firsthand. And when you're in the moment, and there's actually quite a bit of research that now shows when you're talking about driving 100 miles an hour, uh, there is something about having your peers around you in the teenage years, which really downplays risk. You're much more interested in pressing your friends and trying these things than you are in thinking about the outcomes. Um, it almost, you know, turns off uh, the frontal lobes of the brain, the area of the brain that sort of acts as the executive control, the judgment center, the breaks, if you will, of, of bad or impulsive behavior. So part of that is being in a group and going with a crew. Um, but another part of that really is, you know, there, there is a huge difference you know, between intellectually understanding something. They get these messages all the time in school from movies, from after-school specials, um, but there's something about gaining that, some of that experience firsthand or having a peer who does or that, that really makes them think about it a little bit differently. And I think we probably know plenty of adults, even older teens, that uh, maybe they're not drag racing, but they'll look down, uh, you know, when they're driving on the freeway every now and again and go, oh, wait, you know, I'm up near 100. I really need to slow down. 
I'm speaking with Kate Sukel. She is a journalist and author of the book, The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Kate, my guess would be that in terms of gender, that men are generally bigger risk takers than women? That has been the story for a very long time, and there was plenty of research to support it. And the idea was there was an evolutionary biology, uh, you know, kind of story that that men, uh, they need to be riskier so they can go out and find food and avoid predators and, you know, take things back to their family, attract mates. Um, But newer research is actually showing not as big of a difference as we once believed between males and females. And what researchers are thinking now is it has to do with opportunity. So many of the experiments that have been done on risk-taking behavior, both in the neuroscience and psychological realms, They look at things like finances. They look at things like extreme sports. They look at things, um, you know, that women just didn't have great numbers in for a very long time. Um, And as we see, you know, more and more sponsored female athletes by companies like Patagonia and Cliff Bar, and as we see more women in the boardroom and, um, you know, in the doctor uh, operating room or where have you, what we're seeing is, Men and women, there's not that much difference in the amount of risks that they take. So that whole idea that boys are, will be boys and women are better angels, a lot of it really depends on the context. And new research is showing that it's not as cut and dried as we once thought. So when you look at what you would maybe call successful risk takers, what do they have in common? Well, the first thing is you will talk to them whether they are a um, you know world-renowned base jumper or a professional poker, poker player or a famed neurosurgeon. They will all sit there and tell you, I'm not really a risk taker. And you can kind of argue with them about that. Um, but they all sort of, they don't think of themselves as risk takers. And I think that's because they are so well-versed in what they do. They have a lot of experience. They take the time to really know that one area, um, and it's usually the area that, that, you know, they work in, whether it is base jumping or neurosurgery. They spend a lot of time and have a lot of experience. They're always learning, and not only learning from their successes, but also learning a lot from their mistakes. And, you know, they're, they're making sure to really pay attention to things that might trip them up in the future. And that is something that we saw again and again, no matter what their domain was. It was a lot of preparation, a lot of homework, 
and a lot of an ability to take a step back and say, okay, you know, this may be a mistake, but if it is a mistake, this is how I'm going to learn from it to move forward. And what is it that people who are lousy risk takers have in common? I imagine that's harder to define, but, but w- what are they... It is not, actually. Oh, okay. It's impulsivity. A lousy risk taker is somebody who is flying by the seat of their pants. They're not thinking things through. They're acting in the moment, um, and that tends to be the kind of risk that's going to land you in jail uh, or and you know get you a disease or a serious injury. Um, and it really is a huge difference. We often use, you know, risk-taking and impulsivity interchangeably, but they're clearly very, very different from a cognitive standpoint. Flying by the seat of your pants, it may work for you every once in a while, but over the long term, it, it's, it's dangerous. Um, but successful, calculated risk-taking really is about doing the upfront work, um, you know, practicing doing your homework, and again, failing forward. But don't you think that there just are people by their nature that are more willing to take risks, and there are other people who are much more cautious and not willing to take risks, and it's just part of, of who they are, It's n- and nothing more than that? There is some of that, and certainly there's been a lot of work looking at the genetics of risk-taking behavior. Um, a lot of people like to talk about a gene, they call it the warrior gene. And it's a gene that makes people uh, a little bit more out there, more likely to take risks. But, you know, the thing is, is that all of us have some natural tendencies. And it's not that we can't learn to become better risk takers, um, become more comfortable with, with novelty. It's funny that one of the greatest indicators of whether or not when a person will take a risk is how familiar they are with it. And you can think of a really silly example, which is the subway versus driving in a car. If you grew up in New York City, you know, from the time that you're a little kid, you're probably riding the subway and not thinking anything of it. Um, And I grew up in that area. I took the subway by myself when I was 10 or 11. And now I I live in Texas. And I remember telling somebody here that I did that. They were horrified. They had never been on a subway or even in a big city like that. And they thought that I I basically was walking onto a train as a child with a big sign on it that says, mug me. They, They just thought that that was the riskiest thing ever. Whereas your average person from Manhattan wouldn't think twice. But then you take that same hardcore Manhattanite, the person who's, you know, been in the city forever and has seen it all, put them in a rental car in, you know, rural Georgia and tell, you know, give them directions like turn left at the blue chicken and they're going to start to freak out. Wait, where do I go? How do I do this? So much of, of what we're comfortable with really comes down to familiarity. You know, what's interesting to me is that a lot of times we'll say something is risky and feel that something is risky when it really isn't. And, and probably the stereotypical risky thing to do would be to, you know, parachute jump, jump out of an airplane with a parachute. That feels real risky, but statistically it's not risky. Most people who jump out of an airplane live through it just fine. The parachute opens and they land. It's scary, but it's not risky. Well, and that's the thing. Heightened emotions can really change the way that we assess risky situations. Stress can as well. And those are important things to realize. It ties into what I said before about familiarity. I mean, you are so much more likely to die on your morning commute to work. Yet all of us 
you know, get, or many of us, uh, you know, hop in our cars every morning and some people drive up to an hour and a half, two hours to get to work back and forth, despite the fact that there are so many automobile accidents. And yet you hear people all the time talking about how they're so afraid to fly and our emotions really change the way that we do the calculations. They heighten factors that probably shouldn't be heightened. Um, and they may often make us ignore things that absolutely shouldn't be ignored. So if I wanted to be a better risk taker, a smarter risk taker, w- what do I need to do? What are the things I need to put together here? I think the first thing is you need to understand that there's risk involved with every decision you make each and every day. We need to stop inflating risk into something that it's not, um, which is all of this, you know, extreme sports, adrenaline junkie, uh, you know, big business kind of uh, talk that we usually use with it. But I think the second thing is, you know, once you get past that really kind of polarizing language is you sit down and... You think things through. You try to get as much experience before, you know, you take a deep dive uh, into a particular hobby or business project. You learn what you can. You take baby steps. Um, You know, small steps can be, instead of a big jump, they'll still get to the same outcome, but probably with less uh, less chance of a broken leg, right? I think it's really about doing the work, doing the preparation, gaining the experience, and taking the time not to make decisions in the heat of the moment or when you're overly emotional. And those are really the big keys to being a more successful and a more calculated risk taker. Which is, of course, the point, not to take a lot of risks necessarily, but to take the right risks and and do it well. My guest has been Kate Sukel. Her book is The Art of Risk, The New Science of Courage, Caution, and Chance. And there's a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Kate. Oh, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future, Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. If I were to say, think of someone who is too nice, you probably get a picture in your head of someone who is overly polite, apologizes way too much, is always worried that they're going to offend someone, and maybe you're one of those people, or maybe you do some of those things. While being nice is fine, being too nice can cause some real problems. And being too nice is something a lot of people do. Dr. Aziz Gazapura was one of those too nice people, and he made the commitment to change. He's now a leading expert on this topic, and he coaches people on how not to be so nice. 
and he's author of a book called Not Nice, Stop People-Pleasing, Staying Silent and Feeling Guilty, and Start Speaking Up, Saying No, Asking Boldly, and Unapologetically Being Yourself. Hi, Aziz. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Uh, thanks for having me. So let's define too nice, because uh, nice is good, but too nice is maybe not so good. So where's the line? That is a really interesting question, because I think most of us uh, learned growing up that nice is good and more nice is better. But as you are pointing out, a lot of us realize at some point in our lives that there is such a thing as too nice. And I think it's it's not so much you can't look at a specific behavior and say, oh, that's too nice. Because, hey, in a certain situation, a friend needs something, your spouse needs something, your kids need something, you step up and you give a ton. So we can't look at the behavior and say, oh, that's too nice. What we got to look at is the inner state of the person, their emotional state and and what they're doing and why they're doing it. And so if you are doing something because you were want to please the other person because you're uh, you can't handle it if they're upset with you because you need them to to be okay then that's probably going to be too nice yeah and i think of things like you know if if somebody steps on your foot by accident and then you apologize that maybe that's being too nice absolutely and there's a lot of that you know you bump shoulders um two people start speaking up at the same time and you say, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. And a lot of pe- people that are overly nice have a uh, habitual over-apology approach to life. Where does that come from? I mean, well, it starts with a nice training, as I call it. At usually a childhood, um, a primary parent, grandparent is usually the, the primary, uh, whoever is our person is bringing us up. And we get trained very early on to be nice. And that's what parents will say to their kids, be nice. And their parents are doing the best they can. They're trying to like, you know, contain the craziness. I get it. I have two kids myself. But what what most of uh, parents unconsciously are doing is saying, I want you to please me because you're easier to get along with. You're not a ruffian. You're not crazy. You're just calm and do what I want and uh, be obedient. And And on some level as parents, we want that because it's easier. And the downside, though, is then they get older and our kids have problems with being assertive, being really susceptible to peer pressure, not knowing who they are, not knowing what they want. And so the short answer is it, it comes from our upbringing. Do you think that people who are too nice know it? Yes. Okay. That's a, that's a great question. There's like glimmers of awareness. Am I too nice? No, no. Just keep doing what I'm doing. We see that it's not working. Like something breaks down. We get burnt out. We get, we, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we're resentful inside. Something is not working. But the idea of being not nice or less nice is totally unacceptable. So we just double down, dig in, and try to be nicer. And so there's that glimmer of awareness, and then we put it aside until we reach a breaking point. And we say, you know what? This isn't working. And sometimes that breaking point comes from a breakup or we need to break up and we've been in a relationship years too long or a health crisis because that stuff can take a toll on our health to be suppressing and being overly nice for many years. Something happens or we just wake up one day and, and we're fed up and we say, okay, now I get it. I'm being too nice. So there is a, a moment where people don't just get into the glimmers. They actually really get it. And then, then they're ready. Then they just got to learn and change the way that they approach life. Well, I think there is this perception, you know, people will sometimes say, well, I'd rather be nice than be a jerk, as if those are the only two options, that it's either or. You're either too nice 
or if you're not too nice, you're a jerk. But it's not either or. It, it It's a sliding scale. Absolutely right. And I think that's just, it's too simplistic. And often the idea of like, well, if I'm not nice, then I'm a jerk, right? That's um, That's kind of trying to push us back into being nice. And people will often do this with themselves. They'll push themselves back into being too nice because to be other is um, scary. They think they're going to lose love, lose connection. But you're absolutely right. Uh, it's Think of it like a dial. And you want to turn the dial from all the way down on the nice side to just the middle. Where And that involves saying, hey, you know what? Other people and their needs and their desires matter, but so do mine. And I think the habitual nice person devalues their own needs, dismisses their own wants, and is very self-sacrificing. And so we want to just turn it up into the healthy range of give and take and of being able to say, well, what do I need here? And then being able to ask for what we need. Um, Say no to people when we need to say no to them. And that puts us in the healthy medium range. Does all of this, do you think, all of this have its core basis in I care too much about what other people are going to think or say or do? Yes. And I would uh, tweak it slightly um, because then we think the answer is to not care at all, right? I care too much. Well, I shouldn't care. I think it's that when we say we care too much, it's like we can't tolerate unpleasant feelings in others. It makes my skin crawl. I'm going to freak out if if you're upset with me or disappointed or want something that I can't give you or don't want to give you. So yes, the short answer is we care too much. And really like we're just too in, we just can't tolerate it. And so our goal is to increase our capacity uh, to handle the discomfort of someone being upset with us or being wanting something from us. Has anyone ever surveyed the population and figured out what percentage of the population either self-report as being too nice or meet some criteria as being too nice? You know, I haven't seen anything like that. I that's a great question. I I do not know. What's your um, sense though? To... What's your sense of the population? Is is this a a five percent problem or a fifty percent problem? It's big. It's big. And I would say, I mean, you're you're looking at the realm of probably fifty percent because it's uh, it's a dominant way of being. And and a lot most of those people aren't going to identify. The issue is they're not going to identify as too nice. They're not going to say, yeah, I'm too nice. But if you study their behavior. And, and watch them, there's going to be a lot of what they're doing is coming from uh, caring too much what others think, pleasing others, shaping their life in a way so that no one could judge them. And that means holding back, not speaking up, not sharing what they're interested in, not pursuing their passion or what they want to create in their life. And yeah, maybe even more than 50% as I'm saying this. If I'm one of those people, if I'm too nice... How do you how do you stop? You're being, doomed. Doomed. How do you stop being too nice? I mean, because again, the the feeling is, well, if I'm not too nice, I'm a, I'm going to be a jerk, and I can't be a yes. jerk. So yes. I, it's it's uh, it, it's that ease either or thing. So how do you back it off a little? I, I love that question. And the opposite of nice is not a jerk. The opposite of nice is bold and authentic, because niceness is really this like. A persona, this shell of like, hey, I'm, I'm not even here. Whatever you want, I'm here for you. And that's not, that's false. So it's really to be our bold, authentic self. And that helps people dispel the idea that they have to go somehow be a jerk or something. It's like, first, you have to kind of wake up from just that glimmer of like, hey, wait a minute. Being this way in the world is not working. It's not working for me. It's not working for my relationships. I want to be less nice. 
So that's the first step, kind of deciding that. The next step is to do the uncomfortable stuff. And it often is uncomfortable. That means having boundaries, saying no. When someone's like, hey, can you do this for me? And maybe you used to always do it for them, but then you resented them. Well, you say, no, I, I'm, I can't. I'm not available then. Um, you uh, ask for what you want. You tell someone, hey, you have a difficult conversation. Like I asked you to do this and you didn't and now I'm upset with you or whatever it is. So you go do those uncomfortable things. That's the second step. And then the third step is you work through the inner discomfort because it stirs up, it can stir up guilt or anxiety like, oh, was I, was I too mean there? Was I too harsh? Am I, am I a bad person? And we work through that. We, we calm down. We see like, hey, you know what? This is how I want to be in the world. It's okay for me to have needs or be assertive. And then we just repeat that process. And it's like a reconditioning. It, we have to do it again and again. It's not a one-time thing. I remember uh, hearing someone talk about this once and, and it rang true for me that, you know, when, when we say no to people, we think we've devastated them, but, but, you know, we've just, <laughs> we've let them down. We've so disappointed them when yeah. actually they just cross you off the list and go to the next person to see if they'll do it because you can't. And, but, but we, we, in our own mind tend to think our no is much more devastating than it is. Absolutely. And that's true with a lot of this stuff where we think with the nice uh, patterns, we think, oh, I'll crush them if I say no, or that would destroy them if I pointed out something that they did that wasn't, you know, up to my standards or whatever. The truth is that, yeah, people aren't that fragile. They don't collapse in that way. And the only way to really see that is to test it and to prove to ourselves again and again. And I can't tell you how many times I had it all built up in my head how terrible it was going to be if I said this or did that. And then I go do it and the person doesn't even bat an eye. It's not like they break down and we have to rebuild them back up. They're just like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then we move on. And I'm like, wow, that's what I've been avoiding for a decade. <laughs> right, right. And it was no big deal that the, the world still turns when you say no and that's okay. Yeah. And, and the big, the, what makes it this big deal is, yeah, rarely the other person's reaction. It's the, all that, dust and that sediment that gets kicked up in our head afterwards and all those stories. Oh my gosh, that was so terrible. And you know, that's where it comes back to our childhood training, our upbringing, because we're, we're reliving all this stuff from when we were growing up. And so it's not the actual present day that we're feeling all this stuff about that person's fine. They're an adult. They're just, as you said, they cross you off the list, move on to the next one. It's all of our old past stuff. And so that's where we need to do that inner work and have ways to calm ourselves and, and see more truthfully that it's okay for us to ask for what we want. And, and deep down, the biggest fear we have about all of this, Mike, is that we're going to lose connection. We're going to, I'm going to lose, that person's going to hate me. You know, I'm going to lose my relationship. I'm going to get dumped. I'm going to, my friends are going to leave me. My boss is going to fire me. And what we need to test out and prove to ourselves is that my attachments are more secure than that. They're different now than when I was a kid and I, I can be me. It's safe to be authentically me in the world. There does seem to be some cultural element to this. Uh, I think of many Asian people as being too nice compared to more typical American behavior that, that the Asian cultures tend to foster that. Sure. It gets really interesting. Uh, yes, there in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, I believe it was Outliers, he talks about different cultures have a scale of like how much deference they show to authority. And uh, it was Korea and other, um, I think it was Korea, 
South Korea had the highest ratio of like we should and they show the most deference and it was so extreme that they had an issue because there was a plane crash and the pilot was doing something wrong and the co-pilot and the other person on the plane uh, the cockpit did not speak up in a direct manner to that person and they all crashed and everyone on the plane died and it was like it was so extreme and so they had this you know crack team to get in there and try to figure out how to train these korean pilots and co-pilots to be able to communicate with the person in authority so that could be textbook too nice, right? I mean, to to a detrimental degree. What's the advice, if you have some, of somebody who, you know, ha- really has trouble saying no? Um, what's a good way to say no and and understanding that it may cause you to be uncomfortable, but but at least maybe make it a little easier? I love that question. Saying no is, you got to think of it like a, I don't know, a golf swing or a tennis serve. You get better at it the more you do it. And so you can get some basic tips, which I'll give you here. But then, you know, if you try to get your golf swing perfect on the first time, eh, it's going to be a little messy. It's not going to be great. But you do it enough, and eventually it looks more smooth. So same thing with saying no. You do it more often, you'll get smoother. But uh, a simple tip is first and foremost, before you open your mouth, in your mind, remember and reinforce in yourself, I have permission to say no. It's healthy to say no. Like all that stuff you're talking about, feeling like we're going to devastate people, we got to do a little uh, inner work ahead of time because if we think I'm, if I think I'm going to like crush you and you're going to hate me, it's going to be pretty hard to say no. So we got to get some of our beliefs and in, in more accurate and say, you know what? People are adults. They can take care of themselves. I have a right to say no. And that might be as simple as like, you know, putting that on, a, on the background of your phone or on a post-it note. I have a right to say no. And that inner step is actually extremely important. So you could, so the words can actually come out of your mouth. Then when you're actually communicating the no, say no. Be uh, short. You don't need to like justify your no with a long story, a very apologetic story. In fact, you don't even really want to apologize. Now, if you want to convey some like, oh, bummer, you can say something like that or you can say, oh, unfortunately. So, for example, you might say, someone's like, oh, come to this thing on Saturday. No, I, I'm not going to be able to make it on Saturday. Unfortunately, I'm I'm doing something else. But that sounds like a lot of fun and I uh, hope you guys have a good time. One of the reasons I think people don't speak up and ask for what they want and say what they're really thinking is, it, yeah, it may be because they don't want to devastate the other person, but it's also they just don't want to cause trouble. They don't want to make waves. They don't want to start a, an argument. So they, so they shut up. Yes. I have a chapter in the book called Please Don't Be Mad at Me. And it's, uh, it's that conflict avoidance that's that's part of the niceness syndrome, over too nice syndrome. It's it's and sometimes people hear conflict and they think like you know throwing chairs and yelling. I just mean disagreement, tension, friction. And what we need to learn is that healthy human relations of any sort, professional, business, romantic, friendship, have friction in them. If your ongoing relationship with someone is frictionless. One of those two people is not being, is is withholding a lot, is hiding a lot. Because two humans cannot want the same thing always to the same degree at the same times. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And so people are going to get disappointed. There's going to be a little friction. And we want to shift from that's a bad thing that I better avoid to, oh, this is a good thing. Uh, and, And look, I've been doing this for years. It's never comfortable. It's not fun. But it's like, oh, I've learned to be like, oh, I'm feeling upset right now. Okay, let me see what's going on. Mm, All right, that's the person. Yeah, we had that interaction. Yep, this is what I, okay. All right, I I need to have this conversation. 
And going into it, there's a little bit of dread, like, oh boy. But I know it's like medicine. This is going to clear the air. This is going to make us closer. This is going to help us, you know, confront the issue and solve the problem. And it does seem a lot of the time that what we dread never happens. It's never as bad as we think it's going to be. Or, well, almost never. Yes. And the key thing is that no matter how it is, bad or good or easy or hard, we can handle it. And that is the, the, like the root of confidence is knowing I can handle whatever happens. And I think not only that, but when people do stand up for themselves and, and show that confidence that you're talking about, I think that makes them more attractive to other people. You, you want to be with someone who's comfortable being them. My guest has been Dr. Aziz Gazapura, and his book is called Not Nice, Stop People-Pleasing, Staying Silent, and Feeling Guilty, and there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Aziz. Yeah, absolutely. That was fun. Thanks so much, Mike. Well, nothing will ruin your day like having your car break down, and yet most of the time, it's preventable. According to Walt Brinker, author of Roadside Survival, the majority of times that cars break down, it's tire-related. It's usually a flat or a blowout. And that is usually because the tires are underinflated. Take care of your tires, and they'll take care of you. Another reason people break down is they run out of gas, and it's also preventable. Still, it happens. And often, even if you go get a gallon of gas to put in your empty tank, it still won't start. Why? Because when you're pulled over to the shoulder, your car usually isn't level. It's probably leaning to the right, and then the gas pools to the right of the tank, and you can't get it where it needs to go to start the engine. Walt says the solution is to rock the car while someone turns the key to try to start it. And still another reason cars break down is the car just stops working. And Walt says very often it's just a case of the clamp on the battery terminal becoming loose. Check that first, and it may be all you need to do to fix it. And that is something you should know. Most of the people who listen to this podcast subscribe And if you're not a subscriber, you should know that when you subscribe, A, it's free, it doesn't cost anything to subscribe, and B, then you get sent notifications to your, wherever you listen, your phone or your tablet or wherever you listen, that remind you that there's a new episode to listen. So subscribing makes a lot of sense, and it's easy to do. Pretty much every platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, they all have subscription buttons. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.